Welcome to the Journal Podcast. I'm Molly Birchall, Communications Executive for the Chartered Insurance Institute. In this episode, we're in discussion with the CII's Claims Community Board. In this episode of the podcast, members of the Claims Community Board and guests discuss some of the big questions in insurance for 2024. This discussion was recorded during a recent webinar. Community Chair Ashton West poses questions to Richard Napoli, Jeremy Trott and Peter Forshaw. Here is the Q&A with Ashton, Richard, Jeremy and Peter. Hi there and a very warm welcome to this CII um, Claims Community webcast. My name is Ashton West and I have the pleasure and privilege of being the chair of the CII Claims Community Board. Now the purpose of this event today is to sort of discuss and address a series of topical questions about current issues and developments in insurance claims. And even if we can't always answer those questions, um, we hope that the the debate and the conversation will at least generate some useful food for thought. So when I refer to we, I need to introduce uh, who we are. And I'm delighted to say that uh, I'm joined today by three extremely erudite and insightful individuals who are renowned experts in the field of insurance claims. So no particular order, we'll start with Richard Napoli, who is Claims and Legal Services Director for Markel in the UK. So welcome, Richard. Thank you. Then is uh, Jeremy Trott, who is the Claims Director at Ecclesiastical Insurance. Welcome, Jeremy. Thank you. And uh, last but not least is uh, Peter Forshaw, who's a partner at Waitman's LLP. And uh, he's the technical lead for casualty insurance claims. Something I didn't know about um, Peter until very recently is you also qualified mediator, I understand. Uh, a, I, a long time ago I qualified, well, I, yes. I just <laughs> hope those skills are not necessary this afternoon, that's all I would say. So with those introductions, let's get straight into the questions. And the first one, and we'll probably start with you, Richard, if you don't mind, is insurance premiums, and we all know this from personal experience with sort of uh, when our renewals crop up for motor or household, have um, rocketed fairly recently. And um, I think inflation, supply chain issues, and claims costs generally have all been given as reasons for that. And I just wondered if you would um, let us have your thoughts on how you see those particular issues playing out during the course of 2024, and where you think premiums might be heading. Sure, well, I'm still shocked at being called erudite, and we have to get the <laughs> out later to work out what that actually means. But. Um, First, you're right, we, we, you know, we may be insurance specialists, but we are also consumers as well. So for me, my insurance is doubled um, for my car. Interesting, the brands that I drive, they have their own insurer and they won't even insure their own cars, which I find, find slightly fascinating. We know uh, who that is then. Well, maybe. <laughs> issues around inflation and you know, supply chain issues aren't new, but they are particularly bad at the moment. One of the points I really wanted to flag is about rate adequacy. So what we're finding is a lot of these insurers now are having to put their rates up, not just because of the losses they're sustained at the moment, but also, say, the longer tail risks, what the losses will cost at a much later date. So if you look at um, 
PL claims or you know, long tail injury cases, they, insurers need to be getting the right amount of premium, not just for t the cost of today, but in five, six, seven years. If inflation is going up at three, four percent, a claim years later will, co will cost a lot more than the cost of a claim even today. So when we've got insurers that, motor insurers that are losing money and home insurers at the moment, they must be looking forward thinking it's only going to get worse. So my prediction for what it's worth is we will see an increase in premiums. I'm cynical enough to think there's always people that also then think it's a great idea to enter the market. When the prices are going up, new entrants will come in. And what we'll probably then see is maybe a, a softening of these, these increases until these people then pull out of the market again because they've lost too much money. But that's, I don't know what you think, Jeremy. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think broadly speaking, I think we are still under a lot of the challenges we've been under for the last couple of years. You know, the, you know, the global situation isn't great with, with various conflicts and, 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 you know, that's that's playing out in um, in what we're seeing in our insurance premiums. I guess for me, I've got maybe it's um, half full uh, approach, but I've got a slightly more optimistic view of the next 12 months. I mean, if you look, the last 12 months have seen sort of 30, 40 percent rate increases. I don't think those are sustainable in terms of then um, what, what will transfer because hopefully there, there is going to be some some better stability within the market. As Richard said, there might be new entrants which might be playing a more competitive um, market share type game. Um, so hopefully there will be a slowing down at least of the increases. I'm not sure we'll go to an, get to a decrease, but I think there'll be a slowing down of the, the increases. And we've, we have seen that, to be honest, in property insurance particularly. Raw materials you know, how, aren't going up what the, the, in the same way as they were a, a year, 18 months or so ago um, and that's reflected in the overall um, RPI so um, I'm cautiously optimistic although still believe that they'll increase but maybe not by as much as they have been. Okay I, what's interesting and I think probably good news if you agree with me for consumers is it's still a highly competitive market and I think what's happened with Amazon sort of uh, mm. dipping in and dipping out uh, seemingly sort of suggests that it is a, a highly competitive market the motor market I'm talking about particularly but um, house as well. So those forces themselves will drive premiums you know, to some stability initially, if not in a downward direction. It's interesting, you know, obviously listening to you guys who are sort of front and centre in the insurance markets and how it will play out. I mean, from, from my perspective, from a, from a legal background, looking at how the LPR market, for example, works in terms of personal injury claims, I think you know, it, it's very easy for some people to kind of say, well, we'll look at the volume, look at, look at where claims were three, four years ago, look to where they are now, crew notifications down 45%, for example, in EL. So, so therefore, why is that not playing through to lower premiums? But of course, it's a really complex issue. And you've then got to factor in all the other things that are happening in the personal injury market at the moment that feed into increased cost. So you've got, you know, guideline hourly rates increasing from January this year, six, 7% on there. You've got, you know, increases in general damages and Judicial College guidelines, another 6% there. You've got the fixed cost regime driving, potentially driving different behaviours where greater complexity, greater number of experts involved, everything else that's going to feed into the mix, that's going to push up cost and value of claims. And as you say, then you've got all the other issues. And I'm sure you know people listening to this will probably give, give rise to a heavy sigh when we talk about the, the consequences of the pandemic. But the reality is we're still seeing that play through now and probably will do for a number of years. You know, And, and even from the legal sector, you know, you've still got the ramifications of that in 
in, in how quickly courts or not quickly yeah. courts are dealing with the claims and things like that, which all you know prolong cost in it. So, so to take a sort of well, you know, volume is increasing is a very simplistic view of it. Actually, you know, the reason why the cost per claim is probably on the rise is for all those other factors. And, and the economic climate probably influences uh, you know a greater propensity for fraud as well. Uh, that, that is sort of gonna, only going to sort of drive claim costs up. And the uncertainty around the uh, discount rate as to where Absolutely. that might goes for, for large losses. So it's not exactly a rosy picture, is it? But from what you say, it's just, you know, there's still a lot of fuel in there for driving driving premiums uh, upwards rather than down. Yeah, fraud's an interesting one, and I'm sure I'm sure um, the other two panellists also have seen we've seen a significant increase in fraud in 2023 in both first-party and in third-party fraud, both in terms of the numbers we're detecting and the value of that detection. Um, and I think it's just natural uh, at this kind of point in the economic climate. You know, a lot of it is exaggeration rather than rather than pure fraud, but it is just making sure we're all paying, always paying the right amount and we're treating everyone fairly through that process. So... Um, it undoubtedly has increased um, and you know we just to make sure have the tools and the technology to be able to to assist our handlers in spotting it and and dealing with it appropriately I think it's it's, it's fraud is an interesting point I think because as you say we have a history of whenever you go through tough economic times people lose their jobs whatever else you see a rise in fraud and we're certainly seeing that again I think what's what's slightly different this time compared to, to previous decades, is that from a claims perspective, we probably have the most process-driven approach from, from a sort of legal perspective than, we, than we've ever had. Mm. And so the, you've got that added layer then of people thinking, well, it'll go through a portal, whether it's damages claims or, or low value portal, and, and, and it will be easier for me to push that claim through because you know, insurers or, or lawyers are not gonna be as, as focused on it if it's going through the low value portal, I can get more through. But the reality, of course, is that everyone's more diligent and, 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 and focused on fraud than ever before, so it's captured. But yeah. I think that is the, is the danger. There's, a, there's probably a, a, a temptation, an increased temptation for people to put fraudulent claims through because they think, well, it's more process driven now through the court system, so I might get away with it. I mean, we're, we're seeing insurers fighting back along those sort of things as well. I mean, the fundamental, you see it quite often in the media now, fundamental dishonesty claims yeah. going to court and insurers need to keep pushing the point is fraud does not pay. No. I will say quite often that it's not the policyholders that are, are exaggerating, it's the people that are doing the work mm. and it, that's very, very hard because it ultimately hits us as well as the policyholder because if the insurers are losing or paying more on their claims, inevitably it's the, they make it up by increasing premiums and it, it is exacerbating it. You know, the builders, they're in more, there's more demand, they can put the prices up. It might not be intentional exaggeration, it's just a supply and demand issue as well. Um, but it, this is, we've been through these cycles before. This is not something new. It's something we're having to struggle with at the moment. But it's something that we've, you know, we've we've been there before. We'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll be there again in the future, won't we? And the other advantage we've got at the moment is that now, compared to previous times, is we should have a lot more data yeah. and a lot more technology yeah. to be able to spot. You know where where there is exaggeration, either by the by the, as you say by the yeah. contractor or by or, or by the first party themselves. So you know we should be we should be um, in a good position to, to make sure we pay the appropriate amount. I think we've discovered a subject here that we could run another session on in its entirety, <laughs> uh, and we may well do that in looking at how we we tackle fraud. So um, thank you for that. And then, but let's 
perhaps move on to another subject, perhaps with a, a little bit more excitement and, and good news, depends on the point of view. But that's around uh, generative AI and um, particularly ChatGPT is grabbing many headlines at the moment for all sorts of reasons. But it will clearly become a fundamental way which we manage our organizations and the way we deliver services is going to play an increasingly important part of our lives. But it's not without its pitfalls. Um, <clears throat> so how do you see, how do you guys see the, the benefits emerging over time and what might be some of the implications that we have to deal with along the way and we have to manage to, to really get the best out of it and deal with the, the risks? It's a really good question. Um, and again, probably like the first question, we could probably talk for an hour on this topic alone, but it is getting a lot of, quite rightly, a lot of traction. Um, I think, genuinely think the opportunities do outweigh the pitfalls, although we need to be very aware of the pitfalls. I think the opportunities particularly exist um, to streamline claims, to reduce life cycles uh, uh, and pay out in, in a quicker manner um, and, and make sure customers are looked after quickly um, and that we're, when that we're paying the right amount. Um, you know, we've talked often about medical reports and other things, um, you know, the ability to read medical reports in the casualty environment um, and then and you know, getting to an accurate picture of, of, of what would be a fair settlement. Um, I think one of, the, one of the key things, though, is that we need to make sure that we're doing it with our eyes wide open. Um, and I've been really pleased over the last three, four months to be involved in a group of over 120 people putting together a um, code of conduct for claims for how we would use AI in claims that was launched last week. So um, you know, I encourage everyone to go and have a look for that. AI code of conduct for claims um, and um, yeah, really keen and really proud to be one of the first insurers to sign it because I think we do need to be very careful that we're approaching it in the right way uh, and that we're ensuring the machine isn't just making the decisions in all, at all times. There's transparency around that decision-making process and there's a fairness to it that ultimately we can track back to and explain to the customer or the claimant, the third-party claimant, uh, around what, what rationale we have used to come to an amount um, because otherwise if we don't don't, there's a danger we could be seen very poorly by the general public by to using AI just to reduce reduce payments and reduce payouts. As I understand it, Jeremy, and please explain a little if you, if you wouldn't mind, this code of conduct is totally voluntary. It's not regulatory in any way, and so it doesn't have teeth in that sense. So perhaps you could just describe what you think the benefits of it would be. Yeah, so I mean, I think it, it, you're right you're, in your description. It's not, you know, it's been put together by, as I say, over 100 well-intentioned professionals in the claim space in both the both the supply chain and in the and in the, in the insurer space, um, there's no there's no regulatory you know framework behind it. I know the ABI are looking at their own code of conduct for for AI, and I'm sure all of your businesses are looking at AI very carefully and thinking about how how they make take advantage. But I think that the momentum at the launch last week was great. We had, as I said, we had about 300 people either in in um, in the building or online, um, and I know the LinkedIn chatter around it has been very strong and very supportive. Um, it's it's purely and simply a voluntary conduct, a code of conduct, as you say. But the idea is for me that if the more and more people sign up, the more momentum it gets. Um, and then the more people would want to know more about it. And, you know, it's, it becomes a virtuous circle in, in terms 
of then um, uh, an approach. Um, and you know, it's it's fairly easy to sign up to in terms of actually, there's nothing controversial in there. But appreciating that it needs to go through the right hurdles within within organisations to, to be seen by the right people, but there's nothing particularly controversial. It's how, for me, and I described it last week, it's how you'd want any tool actually, whether it's AI, whether it's a fraud tool, whether it's a any other tool that dealing with a claim. It's how you would want your your mum's claim, your daughter's claim, your your friend's claim to be dealt with with transparency, openness, and honesty. So um, for me, that's that's what makes it fairly fairly simple thing to sign up to. And arguable, yeah, that's a good point. Peter, do you have any thoughts on on AI generally? Yeah, I mean, I suppose the first thing to say is quite an obvious point, which is that I mean, the whole field of MI. Not only is it it's still evolving, and and mm. and you know, we will have to react to that, whether through you know revisions to codes or whatever else. So, you know, we don't yet know its full potential, um, but it, I think it is an exciting potential. And I think certainly from my perspective, I kind of see both ends of the spectrum with the people I sort of deal with and speak to, and and, and all the range in between from those who are totally resistant to AI and indeed many forms of technology because they, they I think that comes from a sort of self-preservation fear of what's it going to mean to me, what's going to mean to my job, um, to those who absolutely embrace it and, and feel that you know this is the future and, and look what it can do for us. And, and as I say, all scales in between, but I think I think a sort of cautious optimism is probably where I settle on it. You know, it, it has great potential. Um, as you say, you know, we can use it to speed up the, the, the claims process, we can use it to drive consistency, we can use it to drive response. Um, and as long as we have the governance and controls around that, uh, and we've got, you know, the, 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 the controls around what well, bias, for example, around even sort of use, use of copyright, things like that, which I know is a concern around generative AI. And as long as we've got that, then I think, you know, we need to embrace it because ultimately it's going to be here. I mean, I don't necessarily subscribe to the House of Lords who talked about the, the AI gold rush. But, you know, it, the, the fact is that this, this has huge potential for us and, and we resist it at our peril, I think. Mm, no, that's true. I mean, I, I personally endorse the code of conduct as well. As, same as Jeremy, I think it's, it's the right thing for us to be following. Um, I'm going to sound like a bit of a Luddite, uh, a tech Luddite. Again, I don't know the mood I'm in today, perhaps. But <laughs> everybody's getting very excited about generative AI. You know, it's going, to, it's going to change the world. It wasn't that long ago, and we've already mentioned them. Amazon were going to change the insurance market. Oh, my God, the world's ending. Um, I was reading in the Insurance Times, so I'm sure there's other magazines um, that say the same thing about insurtech funding has been at the lowest since 2018 this year. Oh. And I personally have yet to see something like ChatGBT or, or other generative AI, which is just perfect for using our insurance company. There is a lot of fantastic tech and um, innovative solutions that we can introduce for the things you're talking about to speed up the processes to um, create efficiencies, um, APIs. There's a lot of work we can do with our systems. Um, the key for us is implementing the right thing for the, and providing for the right solution for the right problem. Um, at the moment, there's a lot of people excited, but we're not quite sure what we're excited about. So I, I'm advocating think strategically, introduce the right tech solutions into your business. And um, I'm not yet panicking about you know, the Terminator destroying all our insurance industry. <laughs> I think it's a really good point. I think there's so much excitement about it. Like any bit of new kit, yeah. sometimes it's, um, it's, it's technology that's finding a problem to fix. Yes. Where, and I 100% agree, we need to make sure the tail isn't wagging the dog here in terms of actually it being used to fix solutions out there. But we know life cycles, for example, are too long for, for 
for simple claims. And we know that there's that there's work that can be done, right, report writing and other things like that. So there's, that's where I see the technology really working. I think the other thing I've come back to Peter and just say, I think the really key thing is also to understand what is the impact on our people in yes. our organisations. Um, I'm actually attending an AI conference tomorrow um, and I've been asked to speak there. Um, and I guarantee when I ask this question, which I will tomorrow in the room, how many HR professionals are in the room, I guarantee there won't be any there. And this frustrates the hell out of me, if you excuse the language, because um, I firmly believe, like every tech conference I've been to in the last five years, there's no one from HR. That's not HR's fault, by the way. That's us as claims professionals not understanding the biggest impact will be on our people and we need to make sure we've got the right learning and development and training in place so our people who at the end of the day are our differentiator can then embrace this um, this technology and this change and still continue to do a fantastic job um, for, our, for our individual businesses so that's the bit that still frustrates me whenever we talk about tech whether it's AI or whether it's anything else we really need to be talking about okay so what's HR's role and what's you know what's us as business leaders role in making sure we're taking people through that journey it should it should help our staff do their jobs better it and more interesting jobs yeah. Yeah. yeah but there's an education piece in that isn't it? as you there say is. that's the reality but people don't necessarily always see that mm. um, and as long as we can get that message across I mean we, I you know, in Waitman's we've always talked about augmented intelligence there, there is a role for exactly. for that AI and and, exactly. and, and and sort of generative AI but but it's alongside the human. You know, it, human plus machine, I think somebody said, human plus machine is stronger than machine or human individually. And I think that's the message we need to get across. It's there to help you, but there will always be a human element to it. But yeah. you see, your HR team, ironically, there's probably solutions there, you see the augmenting, that will help HR departments yeah. and things. If people always say with this technology or claims or underwriting, insurance companies, the insurance industry, the Waitmans, you've still got the HR teams, you've yeah. still got the accounts teams. This technology should be able to help the insurer in every area, which would reduce your, your cost base, make it more competitive. So it's not just it's not just your, your loss ratio that's pushing your premiums up. It's also your cost base that's going up. You introduce the tech into that, it might reduce your cost base, which means you're more competitive. Yeah, I, I think I'm actually the, the, the HR point that Jeremy you make is it's absolutely fundamental to this. It is the people issue, isn't it? I mean, it's managing the fear uh, from you know this is not going to take everybody's jobs away. It's making sure that you've got the right skills in the organisation as well because just the, the 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 greater use of technology and uh, and data is driving a requirement for different skills in the insur in insurance claims i mean there was a whole series of um, uh, podcasts produced uh, uh, by the CII actually on people who had had non-linear careers and and started in claims and gone off and done other skills um, and I, and i think the whole you know, industry has to grapple with this. What are the skills that are required in the future? And it won't be the same as they want that they were in the past. No, and, and I agree with that. And I think you know we may well come on to sort of talent acquisition and retention later. But there, you know there is an element of this as well that um, the feeling of people that they you know they want to do jobs that are engaging and exciting and interesting. Actually, what what AI can do is take out some of that mundane grunt work that yeah. actually yes. brings people down a bit, so that. They there is that benefit as well to this. And as long as, again, it, it comes down to that education piece, doesn't it? As long as people understand that, can see the benefit of that, and can come along that journey with you, rather than having something imposed, or indeed not, you know, it's the naivety and ignorance around it that, that causes people to be afraid of it. It must, it must augment, not 
cannot replace. And uh, you know, both Jeremy and I, our service levels are based around the quality of our staff. And it, replacing the staff would actually be damaging our businesses. So it's, it should augment it and make us more effective. Yeah, I, it, again, we're doing well here. It sounds like we've got another <laughs> session we could, uh, we could run on this. Um, moving on, a fairly short question, um, may not be a short answer. What do you think um, consumer duty regulation has done for consumers? Uh, I suppose, in short, is it resulting in better value for, for customers? You know, I, I think um, consumer duty has been a really good thing, um, actually, for our profession. Um, I think it's it's enabled us to really take a strong look at you know what do good customer outcomes look like, um, and and really assess whether we're delivering those. Um, and even in a business like ecclesiastical, where we like to think you know we're we're top of the tree from a service perspective. I'm sure, Michael might disagree, but um, we're top of the tree. You know, it, I think it has made us look at ourselves and actually think both I think interestingly internally but almost sometimes more importantly with our supply chain who are who are at the end of the day out there representing us um, what are they measuring you know how are they how are they assessing um, you know what good customer outcomes be uh, uh, and I think one of the key things for me is it's moved us away from input metrics to output metrics um, so what I mean by that is you know we don't not you know any old numpty as I always describe any old numpty can answer a telephone or you know reply to a bit of a bit of correspondence but Richard's already mentioned it, it it's got to be quality um, it can't just be oh hello goodbye kind of thing or you know just rubbish out because we need to be helping our customer in their hour of need and if we're not doing that effectively I think consumer duty then calls that out um, by really that shift in focus from input metrics to output metrics what things like customer satisfaction scores. One of the things we've introduced at Ecclesiastical, customer effort. So not only are they satisfied, 97% of people are satisfied when they do with Ecclesiastical claims, little plug, <laughs> um, but actually we started to measure customer effort as well, which has been really interesting for us to look at. Um, and you know, when we were first measuring it, 25% felt they had to put a lot of effort in. Uh, now we've, we've reduced that figure over time, but it's still too high for me. So we might have 97% customer satisfaction but 25% of people found it hard work so you know what are we learning from that um, and I think it's through that the whole consumer duty piece both internally as I said and with our supply chain uh, you know we can never and we should never abdicate responsibility of our service to our supply chain um, and now we're, we're able to sort of work with them on, on, on output metrics that really make a difference to the customer outcome not that they've been to see them in 24 hours and written the report in three weeks again it's about quality. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's nicely timing about your, your quality. Commercial Lines Insurer of the Year, five stars just today. <laughs> just saying. Um, get, get ready, people. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, joking apart, um, joking apart, I absolutely agree with you on, on everything you've just said. It really has... Um, brought more focus into the area and kind of re refreshed what the quality insurers do normally, made us think about it slightly differently. What I like to think, and Jeremy and I would talk about this off air, is for the lower end, lower quality um, 
businesses in the industry, it's maybe raised the bar that they have to reach. Mm. For a lot of the, 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 I'd like to say, more reputable businesses, we're already there. It's just making us refocus on it, looking at can we actually evidence this? We know we're doing it. Are we recording it in the right way? Let's look at different ways to do this. And I think that's a brilliant thing for the industry. Will our consumers notice a difference? Well, if we are as, as good as we say we are, they shouldn't. They shouldn't need to notice a difference. Um, but at least we'll be able to evidence it better should someone ask us to evidence it. I, I get the impression that that seems to be one of the challenges at the moment, for, for certainly for boards of the, of the companies, yeah. is, is trying to work out what's the data that they need to look at to, you know, believe that the executive, what the executive are telling them about that they, they're okay or they're fine and there's no problem here and, and understanding what data is required to do that uh, and looking at it in fresh ways seems to be one of the challenges around this. And, well, and we're such big organisations, a lot of the insurance companies and brokers and things, it's very hard that you might, you might be doing be best of breed in certain areas and there might be a small, mm. small area in a, in a little office somewhere that's actually causing a lot of problems. It's very hard to spot so I don't envy a lot of the people trying to keep a grasp of everything that's going on and um, data data is more and more important to monitor that and thinking about the right KPI the right ways to measure is, is yeah. paramount importance okay Peter do you have uh, any thoughts yeah I, I, will, I will avoid the temptation to talk about weight that's high uh, customer service scores and law firm of the year anyway um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I, I sort of come at this, I suppose, from a slightly different angle, coming back to your point about we are all consumers as well. Mm -hmm. And I suppose, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we all talk about, and rightly so, we all talk about putting the customer front and centre of, of what we do. We are all here and we all exist because there's customers that need servicing through insurance, through legal services. Um, and we are all receiving those as well. And so uh, you know, the, the consumer duty, just re-emphasising that focus has to be has to be a good thing, I think. I mean, I, th I think the, the, other, the other problem is as well, though, is, is, is kind of the, the perception of this. I mean, the, the danger is that you kind of focus, because the focus is on the customer, then, then the outcomes are always going to be in the customer's favour. Well, that's, that's not right either. Um, but I think for me, it's around that, that, that clarity, around that, um, that sort of governance and due diligence around, around the, the services that are provided. And as you say, data is, mm -hmm. is key to that, because unless you can condemn demonstrate it. I mean, the, the, the problem that I see with this is is not quite knowing at the moment where the FCA is at any particular point in time and, and, and you know, can make continued and repeated demands on, on you as insurers to demonstrate that you're, you're servicing it. Um, and that's, you know, something that, that we're all having to sort of grapple with as it evolves. But, but data, uh, being able to show that you're delivering the right outcomes, even if ultimately the decision that is made for a particular customer is not ultimately the one the customer wanted, but actually, if they can understand, you know, from day one what the certainty was, they can understand why decisions have been taken in the way that they have. Um, then I think that that's, you know, that's mm. part of the battle. And I think the other thing for me is around vulnerability. I yeah. think that's a really major key part of, of the consumer duty. Just refocusing on on that. And I think you know we're all aware of the perception of increased vulnerability for more people in our community. And so again, being alive to that through the insurances that we're able to offer, training our people to deal with that, whether it's through resilience or whether it's through you know, being able to spot those, those sort of trends and, and early signs of vulnerability, and then being able to ensure that actually what you're offering through insurance and legal services you know, accommodates that vulnerability and satisfies itself. I think, I think that in and of itself is a positive out of the consumer duty. Okay, good. Thank you very much. Just want to say a huge thank 
you to our team of experts, Richard Napoli, Jeremy Trott, and Peter Forshaw. Uh, thank you very much, guys. Um, we could probably have talked all day, but uh, um, some interesting stuff there. Do hope you found the discussion uh, helpful and uh, interesting. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Journal Podcast. For more podcasts and useful links, please visit thejournal.cii.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Until next time, goodbye.